Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School podcast for March 9th, 2023. I'm here with Gigi Hawkins, fresh back from the Mammoth Film Festival. Hello. And I am here with Jason Hellerman. How's it going? And today we have two things that we were talking about, or three things, including some Mammoth Film Festival anecdotes and nuggets of wisdom from Gigi. First up, we're talking about big data and little Hollywood. I love remembering how little Hollywood is, and I can't wait to talk more about that. And then we're going to follow that up with a discussion of screenwriting contests, which is something that like you cannot talk about enough. And, uh, and I want to talk also when we're there about scams. And we're going to follow that up with even more wisdom from Triangle of Sadness. That is this week on the No Film School podcast. All right. So the first thing this week, Jason had this amazing article that was the thing I desperately want to talk about, which is how big data is going to be affecting us who work in Hollywood. And, you know, I saw the headline and I was like, I don't know. I know a little bit about how terrifying big data is. And then I read the article and I was like, oh. Oh, Jason has thought of all of these even more terrifying scenarios about what is inevitably going to happen with big data. Thank you, Jason, for being terrifying. <laughs> I really needed that this morning, and you really brought it, and that was nice. <laughs> Some yeah, I'm here to business. sound the alarm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, your local horrifying no film school correspondent. Yeah, I when I used to work in advertising, and I had a bunch of B two B, which stands for business to business clients. Big data was the buzzword, and I remember a lot of our job were to educate audiences on what the hell that means. And and they would come with all this like jargony language, like HPE, the edge. I'm like, what's the edge? They're like, the edge of big data. What are you talking about? But it, it's just processing data that is so huge that you have to use like math in a way that is like has not been really conceivable beforehand yeah computer a computer has to do it right that's like the big thing it's like we have so much information about x y and z that we've had to feed it into a computer and software to actually analyze what this data means and that's uh, you know it's taken a while to get to hollywood i do feel like it's trickled in with the the streamers but now i do feel like it's kind of being the lead the charge with a lot of creative decisions and it uh, start it's starting to freak me out <laughs> can you go into some of the scenarios that you talked about in the article so for me you know Absolutely. i always picture a herman melville style like person with a giant paper spreadsheet processing the data to build profiles like a 19th century big data when we talk about big data like Bartleby the scrivener <laughs> but you know the sort of initial way i've been thinking about built big data coming in was the sort of netflix model because netflix always made yeah. the argument of like we we have data on what people actually watch and then our data tells us what shows to pick. And that's an argument you hear from them a lot less than you did 10 years ago. I remember all the oppress about Netflix 10 years ago was, you know, our algorithms tell us, like, why. Yeah. We knew before we picked it up that Narcos. Yeah, we're ahead or, of the curve. Yeah. yeah. And they, now they don't never talk about that in marketing, which I think is really interesting. Now they're much more like we try and be like, we try and also like let the artist have a say and let instinct say, have a say. But you, you dug into this deeper than I have. Yeah, I think uh, hilariously quickly, one of the reasons they don't talk about it anymore is because people want access to their data, including the Writers Guild of America, to fig- you know to figure out who's watching what and what they should be paying in residuals. So I do think they got quiet on that front, um, almost in tandem with people being like, "Hey, we should know this, so you could pay us more." But in general, big data is you know something the industry's been using to figure out audience preferences and behavior, right? Just exactly what you said, Charles. Hey, what are people watching? What would they most likely watch if we feed something in? Um, and what would they continue to watch if we continue to make more seasons of it? 
but big data is now kind of spreading its wings across Hollywood and it's allowing studios and other people to get a little bit even more targeted than that. Right. So, you know, we used to think about it as, oh, thank God they know, you know, the Netflix algorithm knows what I want to watch. And there are always those jokes of like, hey, if you've if you enjoyed watching uh, beaches on Netflix, here's another mm-hmm. weepy movie you can watch. You know, like, Human uh, Centipede. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, check out Human Centipede. You that will, will also make you cry. You will cry. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, but the way that I think it's being used now, which is a little scary, is like kind of a limitation on creativity and innovation, right? So uh, let's say you're a storyteller and you're like, oh, I, you know, I really want to tell this um, sentient AI robot movie. Netflix might come back or Warner Brothers or any of these other studios would be like, hey, actually, we found that the the last three sentient robot AI movies haven't worked. So like, what if we change your robot into a giant chicken because people are watching giant chicken movies or something like that? You know, so like you start getting into this sort of niche thing where it's like a note just for the sake of data. Right. And that's sort of the insidious way it's being used right now. Like, hey, actually, I know you wrote this bear movie about someone in the woods surviving a bear attack but actually we find sharks trend better so like what if we took the whole story and made it a shark those sorts of things you're like okay like that's a little interesting and you know the way i see it going from there and and the way i think we worry about it going is aside from these creative limitations which we can all joke about um you can also see it starting to stereotype what this is right so Mm -hmm. it's like what if big data is used to they're like hey actually this um minority group isn't showing up to the box office we're going to stop making things for them. Doesn't matter if it's good, doesn't matter if it's an Oscar play. You know, we won't make stuff for blue people or whatever it is. And you're like, oh, like that's kind of a worry. Or they're like, hey, if we diversify this cast in a certain way, you know, you'd hope that they're like, oh, diversity, look, it's tracking, numbers work. Fast and Furious makes a billion dollars. We should do that. But what in actuality I think they'll probably do is start making excuses for why they're not diversifying. Mm-hmm. Say we actually have tracking these numbers. And this isn't working that sort of way. Or they're going to be like, hey, we're not greenlighting these movies, um, you know, written by people of color or, or, you know, women or whatever, because we're not seeing them track a certain way to make money. There's also like big privacy concerns, which I think, you know, the Netflix joke is one of those things that we've sort of like run through where it's like the algorithms always goofily being like, you've enjoyed Top Chef, <laughs> you know, now watch uh, The Hunger Games. You're like, wait a minute, that's not the the same thing. But it is interesting to think about the data that's being tracked on what you watch mm-hmm. and where it could go. You know, like, is this something they're sharing internally to get your preferences? Yeah, maybe. But, you know, my big worry is like, is it something they're selling to people other places, right? right. So are they selling it to political campaigns? To let you know, like, hey, this person's watching a lot of left-leaning stuff, so you should hit them up for stuff or right-leaning stuff. Are they selling stuff to the FBI or whoever, right. you know, like uh, who's watching these, who's playing a lot of violent video games, who's doing whatever, you know, it's so, like, that's a big one. Um, and then just like the unreliability of it all, right? Like, like the causation and correlation they put together where like, I think if big data was greenlighting movies, maybe it wouldn't have picked get out to greenlight, right. but get out was a humongous success, both financially and critically and, and was this sort of thing. So it's, it's this sort of like untamed, uh, AI model that yeah. I, I think, you know, you could see being good in certain ways if they're like, hey, look, Crazy Rich Asians made this and maybe we should find more, you know, uh, books to adapt by, you know, like in this similar vein to serve these audiences. But it's also something that you can kind of get horrified and be like, oh, what if they decide, uh, hey, the only movies that make money are tiny action movies, sub $25 million and horror movies. And like, why would we green light any more of these? You know, right. and, and I think like, 
obviously you're not letting AI make decisions. There's still people behind it. There's going to be one studio exec. I saw today Netflix is going to give uh, Nancy Myers $130 million to make a rom-com, right? There's always going to be these outlier stories that we can look at, but it's in an industry that's already shrinking and deciding, you know, what stories they want to tell, putting AI behind it to me is like a little worrisome. Also, like if I was a development exec, I'd be like, hey, what's my job anymore? Right. Right. Is my job just to read computer models? You know, like and not pick like, does my taste really matter? Or is my taste being refined via computer? It's a little dangerous. And obviously, we can talk about how big data is sort of spreading into these film contests as well. All right. Well, let's save film contest for last because that's going to pivot sure, us yeah. something else. But there's like two things I wanted to hit on. But then, Gigi, I, what what were you going to hit on before I hit on my two things? Well, the, I think the thing that scares me as a, a writer is what how to react to that type of note where it's like, well, our data says that you need a star in this movie where there isn't, or or our data says you need a shark instead of a bear, uh, and and as a writer. Like, how do you push back against that? Well, that's not what it is. And and it what bums me out is it's all coming from a place of like the uh, execs fearing for their jobs and yeah. and and only betting on the safest bet. And the safest bet is not the best story. And I think the except like you mentioned, get out, but that's still like under five million dollars. And so that right. then relegates any or most original storytelling to lower budget things, which isn't always necessarily going to yield the best output. Like there are some movies that I've seen where I'm like, oh, they were just shy of being great because they were limited in that. I mean, I'll bring up Megan. I think that movie with a slightly bigger budget, I, I loved it. I think it could, with a yeah. slightly bigger budget, it could have gone a step further in a way that would make it even better. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I think like, you know, we talk a lot about like um, tech in Hollywood, right? So like big data is part of big tech. And as these companies acquire movie studios, and you have to service these uh, shareholders. What you're getting is places that are making the safest choice because they're like, oh, well, we want our stock to go up, right? We want everything to make money. We don't necessarily want it to be good, right? Because the direct correlation of like, hey, I'm Academy Award nominated or whatever, like doesn't always, uh, you know, correlate to box office bucks. And I think, Hollywood has always been that juncture of uh, or junction of art and commerce. And what we're seeing is commerce really pushing art to the side to say like, hey, make these safe bets, do these safer things, replace your bears with sharks because we know they'll make more money. And I, I think like as a writer in that world, you can't fight back on those notes because those notes are like they have they're you know, binary towards something that doesn't even exist in the story, right? It's like, okay, like that's a weird thing. Like I get like, maybe needing a movie star in a certain role. But like when you start pushing back on like, hey, actually now your script takes place in Tucson, Arizona, because we find people like that backdrop more is like, you're like, okay, but that's a very different place than the Antarctic, you know, yeah. like, well, but there's a, and yeah, exactly. It's also that frustration ahead, that we all end up in when we're arguing with someone who has data and, the, and because they have data, they think that that data is absolutely correct and thus can't be argued with because they're like, but I have this data that says X and it's like, well, but there's always coding errors in all data. Like, and so the question yeah. always goes back and like, let's go back, uh, you know, in audio recording, we talk about quantizing all the time, which is when you take a sound, which doesn't have a number. And anytime you convert from analog to digital, you have to assign a number to sound and there's always quantizing errors and stuff. And here it's the same thing where like, at some point someone has to do the math and be like, okay, so let's use your Tucson example where people like Breaking Bad, people like Better Call Saul. The takeaway from those two is not, we should set all future crime shows in New Mexico, but if you right. use data, 
you're like, oh, well, I'm going to code that in for where it was shot. And I'm going to like, it's all about the, and it's always a human process. I mean, at this point, we're not to the point where machine learning can sort of look at those shows and analyze stuff like, where is the location and why do we dig it? And the joke in machine learning is always that machine learning just means outsourcing labor to third world, low paid workers. Like for all of those big online data plays, there are always thousands of people working in a third world tech center, analyzing images and coding it and taking out the offensive stuff. And it's just moving the labor there. So there's always stuff where it's like, the famous example is Johnny Mnemonic. Although I have a second example I like, where like, uh, because Johnny Mnemonic flops, the Wachowskis almost didn't get the Matrix made because everybody was like, well, it's a sci-fi about a weird alternate world starring Keanu Reeves. And it's like, well, yeah, but those are wildly different movies. And like, like, there are things other than the checkboxes that make a movie what it is. So the Smurfs didn't get a movie until 2011. And I always like to think that that's because of Avatar. Avatar made a lot of money and someone was like, well, people like blue people. And so they greenlit the Smurfs. And then they were like, actually, the Smurfs don't have the gravitas to carry a movie. None of the Smurfs movies have done well because they don't have that depth that you need that you get from Avatar. And so it's like you end up in these weird arguments with people where they're like, I have data. And I'm like, yeah, but your data is kind of bullshit. Like, I don't (laughs) believe it as like a thing. But then the flip side is art and commerce, you know. 10 years ago, everyone was shooting in Tucson for the tax credit, whether or not you had the data, right? Or like the number of projects that were like set in Michigan. You know, there was a joke in 2006 where it's like every script you read that year opened exterior Detroit because it was like Michigan had a very good tax credit. I loved those Uh, days because I was at the University of Michigan and I was like, yeah, we get to make movies here. (laughs) (laughs) And then it went away. Yeah. It's like the Boston boom of the 2010s. Every movie, Boston, you know? Yeah, yeah. but that and wasn't there, all tax credit. They, that was also some weird yeah. other thing, right? It was like a weird cultural moment where everything was Boston crime movies. Yes, yeah. It was, uh, It was well, because you had one Boston crime movie or two, make a lot of money, you have The Departed, make a ton of money, and suddenly people are like, we should do that. Like The Heat, Boston. You know, you're like, okay, yeah, like, I guess that makes sense, you know? <laughs> uh, but, you know. All of them. Oh, yes. And the town yeah. was also really good. And you had the mm-hmm. town and yeah. the departed and people were like, oh, I guess America wants seven more Boston crime movies. Yeah. None yeah. of which. Every were, Dennis Lehane novel. Yeah. yeah. None of which were as good as the departed or the town. Yeah. Yeah. Man. All right. Big data. Absolutely terrifying. Terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and, and annoying. Scary and annoying. The, Which the is the worst story, you know? to be scared of yeah, something definitely. and also just annoyed by it. It is. Ex- I think that is it's like it has profound impact on our careers and on this industry. And it's also one of those things that it can be like, well, make it a make it a shark. Just make it a shark. And you're like, that's annoying. Yeah. It's a bear movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but also, I, I liked that you hit on something, which is how will our data be sold? Because like, if you guys haven't seen it recently, there's a big article going around about the fact that Facebook and Google are compelled by subpoena to report abortion searches in states where abortion is now illegal. And That's, and Facebook yeah. and Google are complying with subpoena. So far, the only big tech company that goes out of their way to not comply with subpoenas is Apple, where like the FBI will be like, you have to break into this phone and Apple will be like, we can't, which, you know, slapped. I like that moment. But Google and Facebook are complying with these. And like, is there a universe where in a year or two, Netflix is going to be like, well, if somebody watched Obvious Child, yeah, do I have to, to tell them? Yeah, is will I be compelled by subpoena to show you everyone who watched Obvious Child this year? And like, that's not, man, I miss the times when you would say weird dystopian shit like that. And you'd be like, yeah, but that's not going to happen. That's actually not right. impossible to picture yeah. that that could 
occur. And that's like a really interesting thing because there's ways to stop out. Like I don't use Facebook. I'm switching as much as I can to DuckDuckGo for searches. Like there's ways, like if you're considering an abortion, please use DuckDuckGo. Um, <laughs> but like, yeah, thinking about HBO Max being compelled by subpoena to reveal my viewing habits. Yeah, it's something I worry about all the time, uh, mostly because of all the trash I watch all day. But, uh, you know, I, I also think it's just like, it, yeah, like you said, Charles, it's it's a dystopian world we didn't think would happen. But it's also like my fear, as always in Hollywood, is that like we get the praise and the blame, right? So mm-hmm. it's like if anything bad happens, it's like, well, look what this person was watching on Netflix. It's like that sort of thing. We're like, okay, that might have nothing to like. There's a whole society out there, you know, that could be it's like the video or violent video game argument. You know, and I, I mm-hmm. think like as we back Hollywood into these corners or, um, you know, make them a monolith you know, for, for what these things are, it's like, you're going to get praise and you're going to get blame. And I don't love the idea of anyone accessing, you know, what we're doing or, or what's going on and kind of getting in there. But yeah, I think I, it's, it's that big data thing, you know, it's, it's how do you get away from it? I'm in a class action lawsuit that was targeted to me on Instagram, ironically, because I think it's suing Facebook and Instagram, but about HBO Max and uh, sharing data and I hope I don't get disqualified from the outcome for sharing it on the podcast. But it's interesting to see how like there, this could be something that pushes back against, um, you know, privacy. And I think that it'll be very interesting to see how this comes up in the next election. seems like it's uh, something people are talking about. And finally, you know, coming from somebody who used to totally drink the Kool-Aid selling advertising at Google, I I was like, no, we're helping. We're making ads relevant. <laughs> now I'm like, no, this is absolutely a violation. And, 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 and it's scary and annoying to see it seeping into our entertainment industry. Yeah. I mean, as a screenwriter, and I mean, we're all, we've all written. Uh, we always joke, like, what's your Google history? What's the craziest thing you've Googled, oh, you know, screenwriting-wise? Yeah. And I think about that all the time where I'm like, I'm definitely on a list somewhere. You yeah. know, like I've written about enough murders and heists and things and it's like okay yeah this is you're you're on a list somewhere you know how to hide a dead body what what's the mafia do how to well, no, but holy shit no yeah. holy shit guys yeah. it's the ultimate alibi yeah everybody who's ever been yeah. caught and it's like well your wife is dead and your google history is like where to buy a shovel you can be like but i was i'm a screenwriter all you have to have is one produced screenplay and you could do whatever crimes you want and your google history is right. inadmissible you found the fucking loophole <laughs> all right wow do crimes. Do crime. Write crimes. Um, do yeah, crimes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Write crimes. Do crimes. Love it. Yeah. Well, but that pivots us to the contests. Uh, is big data starting to show up in the contests? The answer is absolutely. Yeah. I think that, you know, screenwriting contests in general, we'll go into this a little bit more, but like uh, some of them, not Wait. all of them, but some of them are about uh, our data, right? And And who's entering what, right? You have. Uh, very specific contests, right? Like, oh, family-friendly or action or whatever. You also have more generic contests of, uh, you know, like Nickel or, you know, Scriptapalooza. But in between all that, you have places like a Coverfly, you know, that that maybe is tracking, like, what you've entered, what, where you're going, how often you're going to enter something. Uh, and and a company like Coverfly, uh, just using them as an example, nothing against you, Coverfly, except for the fact that you are part of a giant conglomerate yeah. that owns a lot of other contests, that owns a lot of other you know, I think over 300 plus contests. So it's like the ability to track what everyone's entering and all that stuff. And then also like plant cookies to then advertise to them, you know, is it's an interesting 
situation to have like with a website like that, right? Because you know, I don't know what data they're selling or what they're sharing internally, but you know, they you might let's say you're a forty plus year old screenwriter, uh, you know, writing action movies and you're putting them into the different contests. They'll know that you'll know your age, you'll know what you've entered. Suddenly, you might get a lot more advertisements for mm-hmm. things like that, or things like that. And I think like we're seeing that definitely used that way and and tracking. I also think like we met, we touched on it earlier. With, with Gigi said, but like Instagram and Facebook ads, things that are targeted to pop up, you know, like who's selling what? Are you going to start getting a lot of advertisements for the Austin Film Festival because you Googled or because you entered it or because, it, you know, you've you've previously entered like the Blue Cat Screenwriting Festival and for some reason that information was sold and now they're selling you other ads. So it's definitely getting in there that way. And I think a lot of it for now is used to track what you should be entering or like what you could enter in the future to advertise you with different things. But I do think some of it, you know, has a little bit more of like a, a worrisome thing in terms of like, you know, the frequency success rate, mm-hmm. different things they're tracking about you that, you know, could be accessible to other people. So I have a rule for any screenplay that I'm writing that I need to get at least one piece of feedback from somebody who doesn't know me and owes me nothing and doesn't care about me. And so that is ha- where the screenwriting contests come into play. And there are contests, including Coverfly, which I've submitted for, where uh, I I submit to A, icing on the cake to win the contest, B, it's a deadline, and but C, it's they, there's a feedback offering. And, and I think that you need to approach those contests with that in mind because it's so easy, and I am guilty of this, to be targeted these ads and or to go onto these screenwriting websites where then they're pushing other contests that you can just add on to your little shopping cart and you get that adrenaline rush of, you know, selling, buying something and uh, putting yourself out there and doing and but but then you learn that it's like owned by the same company. So like there's this there is this kind of nefariousness to that space. So I think it's very important to like re like do do research and talk to people who you've had like really valuable experiences with with these contests and also look at what you're getting out of it at the end of the day like is it something where you're it's a contest yes but like you're applying for a a lab or a program or is it like the slam dance screenwriting contest where you can you can also get feedback from there and it's from a vetted uh competition that uh we know exists and we know it's real and we know it's uh i don't know if it's a non-profit or a for-profit but like we, we know there's something there. So I think that like, there's a lot of junk out there, just like film festivals. I don't trust the Film Freeway Top 25 film festivals because that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a quality film festival. But I also wonder when we're going to start to see, because like, you know, if you guys all remember from a couple of years ago, Austin Film Festival had a huge drama when they got too many yeah. submissions and they weren't able, you know, because every, you know, with Austin, you get coverage. And in order to even win, it has to be read and have coverage. and they. They got too many submissions and they out, they recruited less than stellar reviewers, Reviewers. which like, I don't hold it against Austin. Austin is a very long storied screenwriting festival that does a very good job. And they had a tricky year as people do, but I wonder at what point there's going to be a like AI evaluation of the first Uh pass of the screenplay. And then only the top 30% of screenplays will actually get a human reader because somehow that AI is going to like analyze your number of typos, analyze your lack of character motivations, <laughs> and just be like, nope, this character's too passive, you're out. 
Yes. Yeah. I mean, Charles, I think you hit the nail on the head again. Like, I do think that's probably within the next five or six years, maybe even sooner. It really depends which AI wants to team up with the screenwriting festival. And and I think many would welcome it just because you'd pay less readers and have to give less away for free. But it, it is a worry. It's a worry, certainly. And I think like, aside from not wanting AI to like, you know, I, I think AI would pass on Rocky. It's like, what does he do for the first 40 minutes? But it's still, you know, one of the greatest, you know, it's one of the greatest movies of all time. Like, how do you, how do you find that stuff? But I, I think like, aside from even that, it's just, just the worry that like, yeah, like it would just pull through what, what they thought was marketable. Right. So it's like, if a, if this sort of big data thing is like, Hey, we need to save the cat four quadrant movie to win this screenwriting contest. Like, who's who's uh, tweaking it behind the scenes? Like, let's say you run, we ran the the total scam screenwriting contest, and everyone that came in, our AI, we told like, hey, we want our winner to actually like, we want that movie to have the highest possibility of being made, not necessarily be good. So we feeded the algorithm, the AI, with like, hey, we want a four quadrant movie with. Uh, this kind of cast and blah, blah, blah. And then basically is it, it's not weeding something out that's good. It's weeding out what it decides is marketable. And, and in our fine print, we've said like, hey, like, you know, what we've done is we trust this AI to make the thing. And like, we're, we're all about not necessarily like the best screenplay, but what's the most makeable movie. And, blah, you know, like familiar. you can hedge, hedge your bets behind different things. Then suddenly you're, you know, you're not running a screenwriting contest you're just sort of running a feeder farm where you're getting applicants to pay you a ton of money to let a computer sort through who it thinks is best and then arbitrarily anointing a winner and then supporting yourself i think that's the one thing i worry a lot about with these screenwriting contests what they cost and what you're getting right as Gigi said like if you're not getting anything back except for a pass or a yes and you're paying 150 bucks well who's profiting well it's it's the screenwriting competition right it's like and if they're running let's say 10 to 15 competitions a year we're, where their people are paying a hundred dollars to enter and they're just crowning one winner and they're like, oh, but for 150 bucks, we'll give you feedback. And then the feedback you get is from poor, some poor overworked soul who's probably only reading the first 10 pages and be like disqualified, disqualified, you know, like whatever it is in their opinion. Um, you know, suddenly you've, you've really got a cat, like a really high cash opportunity, uh, with low overhead. And really it would take something like that awesome film festival thing that went viral, right? Mm -hmm. The feedback went viral because it was, some of it was offensive, I remember, and we did cover it on No Film School in 2021 when it happened, like offensive or just wrong or things like that. It's like, yeah, like that could happen, but it takes like it going viral on Twitter right now for anything to actually come of it, um, which I think is like, you know, not great. We've done, look, we covered a long time ago. I did an article and I think it's linked in my screenwriting contest article on there if people find it. But uh, what what are the best coverage mm -hmm. opportunities, right? You're paying for coverage. What can you do? And we sent the same script to three different services and, and paid a lot of money. And, you know, like I generally was favorable for stage 32 and the blacklist and this other place get made, which just does like a zoom with the person who read it, which I thought was fine, but, but it was the most expensive of the three, you know, uh, again, favorable of them, but it's like, there's a lot of those out there, right? We only tested three and those aren't even probably the three most popular. They're just the three that I knew like, Oh, let's like get stuff written yeah. and have stuff done. I felt like they were the most quote unquote professional services that I could find, but it's, but it is interesting. Like there's a whole niche market out there of websites that are making money on feedback for your script when you don't really know who's reading it. Yeah. And you not only do you not know who's reading it, you don't know their credentials. You don't know if they're any good. And it's not like, but yes, with the blacklist, I sort of trust Franklin Leonard's system to vet these people because I I know a couple readers on it, you know, like I don't know anybody that's on it that's I feel is underqualified. I feel like I know people on there who are overqualified, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like 
whatever. It doesn't mean every every feedback you get is amazing from there, right? But I do think like if you complain, they generally give you your money back. There's like a pretty good system there. But anyway, but like I digress. Like not everywhere is going to do that, right? Some places are just going to be that. Hey, I'm selected the feedback. I'm sending it to the ether, and you might just get someone who writes back like you're like the most annoying jargon of like your character's undeveloped, and I feel like your inciting incident comes too late. It's like okay, but you could apply that to any script if you just sent a paragraph. Yeah. So it's it's interesting to suss this out. Um, especially as d- data comes in play. It's, it goes back to that same coding error that we were talking about before with big data, where like, I love, I've read many of the screenwriting books, I like them, but one of the things I'm always so disappointed by when a screenwriting book is when it starts to play that game where it's like, and actually this applies to every script ever written. And then there'll be like right. some long chapter about like, uh, you think this movie this doesn't apply to, but here's my <laughs> reason where it's actually 24 acts, but it fits my thing. And you're like, no, like, we all have ideas and approaches and efforts that we're trying to figure out structure. And then there's movies like Rocky where like, it doesn't kick off to 40 minutes, but it's still a fucking great movie. And like, that's yeah. like, it's it, there is no rule that covers all cases. These are approaches and attempts at understanding a complicated, messy thing. They are not like strictures. And like, I can't imagine that you can teach that level of nuance to AI. Cause clearly it's also right. really hard to teach that level of nuance to humans. Mm-hmm. And like, it's, <laughs> So it's one of those things of like, I really do think about it. And it's that reverse incentives thing of like, well, if we're going to do that and an AI is going to vet it, well, then it should be free. If it's really just a serving the studios to hunt for those things. Because, you know, a buddy of mine worked for a VFX company and he went to Hyderabad and helped set up their Hyderabad office. And he was like, it's the craziest system because everyone works for free for the first six months and pays for the job. Everybody wanted in VFX so badly that they paid a fee and worked for free for six months. And he was like, he eventually left because he was like, I just don't feel good participating in this. Like, this is just not like... Disgusting. But it's also like, it's the same thing that like the industry has in general of like, people want in it so much that they're willing to do strange things to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Quickly, are you guys familiar with the term the hope machine? No, Uh, no, but I know it. I feel like I know what it is in my heart. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah. Turning. So John Gary, who's a screenwriter, a uh, good friend of mine, uh, shout out to you, John, if you're listening, uh, coined this term called the hope machine, which is sort of taken off on Twitter and hashtag screenwriting Twitter, um, if you want to participate in that uh, somewhat toxic place uh, at times. But uh, the hope machine is basically this. People really want to work in Hollywood. Exactly what you said, Charles. You're on fire today in terms of hitting the nail on the head. People want to work here. And they're so desperate to work here, they will do anything. So the hope machine is when companies see that and they, it's that sort of pay for play idea where they're like, great, pay us a fee and we'll get you in. You know, if you want to come into this hope machine, whatever. So you're feeding that hope machine. You're feeding $50 into, you know, paid an extra feedback fee on your screenwriting contest because you're hoping to get in, you know, and you're, you're feeding that machine and paying into it. You're working for, to, you're paying someone else to work for them because you're so desperate to get that singular link into where the industry is going. Um, and the hope machine is something that sort of preys on all of us and feeds into us uh, because this is really the only industry I can think of that like you don't really have to be credentialed to join. You just have to be good at the thing that you're striving to do. You could be a good director, a good writer, a good editor, a good VFX person, the best boom operator in the world. You know, nobody really cares. Honestly, like unless you're like applying to be an assistant, hilariously, if you went to college, what you're doing, you know, so like there are these people out there, you know, like the weekend warriors, like the, you know, whatever, like the moms and dads who are spending Saturday mornings writing their screenplay before their kids get up or do whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and the hope machine is this sort of 
praying thing that's out there, right? The contest that's a little shady. That's like, oh, this is our single mom screenwriter competition. Send yeah. us a hundred dollars and we'll pick the best one. You're like, oh God, you know, like to your target. <laughs> exactly. That's yeah. But like, there's these sorts of things out there that are doing that. We're feeding into it, and uh, Hollywood is really interesting to me in that we're really the only industry. Like, you don't have to see like uh, you're not nobody's you're not trying to become that for a investment baking. Like exactly, yeah. That. But but out here, it's, it's the dream. You're living on yeah. the dream, right? You're the hope and a prayer you have, and the hope machine is that ever churning thing that people try to exploit, which yeah. is like, hey, I really want to do this. I believe in myself. I think I'm a great storyteller, and it's like great for hundred and fifty dollars. I'll tell you why you're not. And if I get hundred and fifty dollars <laughs> from several thousand people, suddenly I've got you know uh, enough to pay for the year. We think about that year. I think that uh, Austin had its overhaul. I think you know, they were expecting something like 3000 contest entries and they got 7,000 or something like that. So it's like they had doubled what they thought they still made all that money, right? People complain, but it's not like they gave that money back, right? It's like this, this money still matriculated into their system and allowed them to work. And if you look at, um, you know, these certain companies who have 10 or 15 screenwriting contests a year, you're like, Oh, you're just, a, you're just making money off rolling people doing it. it. It's like you're rolling it, you know? And, and if those are, then link to a giant platform like a cover fly or something else suddenly you just have a platform that's probably making millions of dollars a year based on people uh you know entering these contests it's it's a it's an interesting thing but yeah i want to speak to a contest or it's actually for a pilot accelerator program that i have progressed to the finalist stage of and have already seen a return on my investment and that's the women's Amazing. weekend film challenge pilot accelerator which they've done a really good job being transparent about what the program is. But uh, having made it to the quarterfinalist, semifinalist, and finalist round, along the way, they are um, celebrating the wins publicly. They are giving out final draft, free final draft for people who make it to this a certain level. They are they did a hosted a happy hour or a, a virtual happy hour for semifinalists. They're creating a networking platform for everyone who's made it this far. If you make it to the the semifinalist round, you're read by two industry professionals who Amazing. are they they share who they are. It's like Chelsea Devontes and like actual yeah. development execs. And I feel very cared for by this and 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 yeah. have already if I don't make it to the next round. I am so happy for the experience because I feel like they are trying to add value. They've also given access to their behind the paywall seminars where they have talks with screenwriters, development execs, like a lot of just adding value throughout the process. On the flip side, I have applied to so many things where in, I know up front because it's in the FAQs, they don't even tell you if you don't get in. They just announce the deadline yeah. thing and, and, and that's it. And, and I think it's so and these are from networks and places that have budgets and they can, you can respond to, you can send it a thanks, but no thanks email, at least it's the least you can do. So I think there's yeah. like, you know, we've talked a lot about through big data, the lack of humanity with that, but like this industry also does breed a inhumane way of existing where it's like, it almost, there's actually a really interesting talk that Charlie Kaufman gave accepting an award that I'll put in the link of this where he talks about, right. you know, people reacting because they've been trained to react this way or trained to sort of dismiss the creatives. But like at the end of the day, this place doesn't exist without the creatives. So we need to hang on to Absolutely. that and we need to fight for that. Yeah, I think that's, I couldn't say it better myself. I think, you know, writing, 
is the blueprint for everything you've ever seen, right? If, if you're watching it on film and TV, a writer gave it to you, not to sound like uh, the Irishman over here. But, uh, you know, that's, that's the story, you know? And I think these contests are preying on that idea of like how I can be that. You know, I, I'll say like the biggest red flag for any contest for me is if they have industry leading people reading you and don't name them. It's the mm-hmm. number one thing. I'm like, oh, okay, that, that means nothing to me. Um, and the other thing is like, like you said, Gigi, it's like you, when you apply, if they don't tell you what happened, then it's just like, oh, they really did just want your money. Right. Yeah. Like it, and, and, and at that point, I think you have to start worrying about what it is. Uh, you know, on no film school, we put a list of just screenwriting contests that I think are worth it. Of course, like number one is the nickel fellowship, just because it's the one everybody talks about and knows. Number two, we did include Austin and I did put a disclaimer in there that a couple of years ago, it was not great for a lot of people. You know, labs, I think, are always good, especially big name labs and black labs and uh, yellow labs. Uh, no, but uh, <laughs> the Sundance Sundance Screenwriting Lab is amazing. You know, I, I, I know a number of people who have got in there, found a mentor and, and moves have been made. Just a couple other ones we like. Final Draft Big Break uh, is one that you know, I had a friend, um, shout out to my friend Liz, who was a finalist twice and I think maybe won once and just like a cool spot to get found and, and also somewhere people look. You check out the article for other things. And I think I talk about the blacklist on there and link to all of our coverage of that. We've I, I want to jump in quickly because yeah. what uh, yeah. the episode interview going down the feed tomorrow uh, for Friday is for the film Fancy Dance and the, uh, the co-writers and the director both came up through the Sundance Labs programs. And oh, they talk great. a lot about that and how they developed the story and how they came together as a writing team and how they made the movie with support of labs, not black labs or yellow labs that I'm aware of, but Sundance right. Labs. Yeah. But I think that it is uh, a, a thing that, it, it's a job to be applying for these things. They have extensive essays. You're writing your, your you, it's a month of prep, I think, for, for all of these labs because they're all slightly different and you have to have your screenplay ready. So it's a, it's a lot. And, and I think, yeah, I... I I spend way too many times in Google Docs <laughs> writing my personal statement again and again and again. Oh God, it's exhausting. Yeah. I also yeah, think it's time and yeah. I think it's, it's a lot of time. I think it's important to look at, in addition to everything else Jason just listed and Jason's list in specific, I think it is important to look at the history of a lab. Like I would be very careful about new labs. I know that new labs start all the time that are really interesting, but like 10 years ago, I participated, uh, I applied for a lab and like they had good people. I'm not going to list the good people because they all disappeared by the time it happened, but they had good people on the original website. Like big people were originally in it and they named them. And I was like, oh, these are legit people. I entered, I won. Their thing was that they were going to finance a couple of projects. I won. I was one of two projects they were going to finance. And then it was like a totally wasted year of my life Uh dealing with these people that ended up Uh in like, uh, like legal stuff had to happen. And you know, it was a brand new lab. I should have, like, in retrospect, the big takeaway for me was like, yeah, the first year is probably not the best one. Like, let's see if they have a track record first. Yeah. Because it was like a big, messy, complicated thing. But they had a lot of industry people on. I don't know how they got them, but they had like legit folks, all of whom's names were off the website by the time all of the other stuff happened. So, you know, Shady. track records, track records yeah. matter. Yeah. Um, people are now- I wonder if this is a, a perfect way to pivot into my little anecdote about Triangle of Sadness. Speaking yes. of uh, I can't wait. track records. So have you guys seen the film? Yes. It's oh, amazing. Yeah. I have seen it three times and I'm obsessed with it. And it's, I think, 
speaks to my sensibilities as a creator. I'm like, this is exactly what I want to be doing. And so I saw that Film Independent was hosting a reading featuring actors in Hollywood, including Fred Armisen playing the Russian, Dimitri, uh, Nicholas Braun playing um, Carl, we had Ayo Edabiri playing Yaya. Uh, and it was a blast. We had um, Simona Tabasco from the, the White Lotus playing Abigail. And, and so they did a stage reading of most of the screenplay. So, so they set this up. They had uh, the actors sitting in front with their, um, their characters who they were playing uh, named in front of them. And then as we're gearing up to towards the end, there's a scene in the movie where uh, the Carl character played by, in this case, Nicholas Braun, and the the pirate who is played by Jordan Firstman, I believe, are being interrogated by the Abigail character for eating pretzel sticks when they should have been watching the fire. So they were being very shady. And so Ruben Osland said, stopped, stopped the reading and he said, so do you guys know the movie or the, the YouTube video, Denver, the official guilty dog video? And, and some people were like, yeah, yeah. And then he played it and it's this video. Are you guys familiar? Denver, the official guilty dog. I'll play a clip from it at the end of the podcast. It's a video of a man uh, picking up a bag of kitty cat treats. This is from 2011. And he's showing it to his dogs. And then he turns and we see Denver and this dog is feeling so much guilt, so much guilt. It's very (laughs) funny. Music's playing. You'll hear it in a moment. When Ruben was directing this scene, this was what he gave the actors. He said, watch this video. This is the feeling that you're having, experiencing right now. And so I was like, oh, I love that. Like I'm seeing a director use something so pop culture-y or so niche, like a YouTube video to to get this feeling from this scene. Then we watched this the the video. It's brilliant. It's it's a wonderful performance from a yellow lab named Denver. And then we go in to do the scene for the reading. And in the actual script, it says the pirate stands in the corner. He is acting exactly like Denver in Denver official guilty dog video on YouTube. And this is... Oh my God, amazing. (laughs) It's incredible. And I I believe this script is nominated for an Oscar. And it just made me feel like as a writer, as a director, you can use whatever you want to get across your point. And it made me really happy. There are no rules, people. Yeah, there are no rules. I don't care what screenwriting Twitter says. Use whatever you want to get, convey exactly what you want. Jason, was it your article recently that was like, it's okay to say we see? Yes. Yes, it was, yeah. And I was like, yeah, why is it some ridiculous rule that it's not okay to say we see? And I don't know. We could do a whole podcast on all the wrong things you'll read on screenwriting Twitter. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Well, and Ruben Oslin is a big YouTube guy. Like uh, Force Majeure, there's three or four scenes that are direct YouTube lifts where he's like, this was a moment. Like the whole ending of Force Majeure on the bus is a YouTube video that he was like, oh, that's too good. That's too good. And like it totally, and it's like, why should we not? Like, if we are gonna embrace the universe, like YouTube is part of the universe. The fact that Kadar, rest in peace, was a big YouTube watcher and had like YouTube. It's always one of those things of like, oh yeah, history is very long, and so somehow Jean Kadar got really into dog YouTube. Oh, I love. So that. he's probably seen Denver, the guilty, the official guilty dog. Yeah. Ah, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, that's like Thanks the best piece of screen screen 
screenwriting advice ever. However, I will still say you should not include the link to the YouTube video in the script because I'm old. I think <laughs> the title is appropriate. That, I, think it had I think it's just fair. the title. And, and I like that it was like, as if we'd know, as if we'd know. Yeah. And then I'm like, I do know. Ruben, I know what you're doing. Yeah. And the ones you don't know, you yeah. Google. And honestly, that script is so good. If you're reading that first time, you're that deep into it. It's, I think, like, maybe okay. Like, you might, like, put it down. If you didn't know, go watch and be like, this guy's a genius. A genius. Well, but yeah. also, let's let's remember, scripts yeah. serve different functions at different points in your career. Mm-hmm. So, yep. is that an effective move in the first page of a screenplay where you've never had a screenplay made and you're trying to get repped? No. Yeah, probably not. Probably yeah. not. <laughs> yeah. When you're already Ruben yeah. Ostland and you've made Force Majeure, and, you know, you've you've had some awards and you're now in the phase where you're like, oh, th- my scripts are about planning the movie and are just a document for the team and are not a document to try and get me somewhere halfway through. Can you start referencing YouTube videos? Maybe. So there's always again, it's always nuance. It's always yeah. nuance. Absolutely. There are no there are no great pillars. You know, it's it's it is truly case by case. And you know, use common sense, people. I mean, I, if there's one great pillar, it's probably no white ink on black pages. <laughs> I believe. Like yeah. a I'm black for background. That. Yeah, that would be a very, your hands would get very dirty uh, mm-hmm. reading like if it was like you uh, printed all the black ink. All right, well, this was a great episode. Uh, do you guys have stuff to plug? I have a short coming out with Quantity Magazine, which is a artist collective about just doing it. And that is exactly what we did with this short. So check out The Loop on Quantity. I just want to replug something that's uh, been around for a little while, but I have a free screenwriting book on nofilmschool.com. Um, you should check it out. It's absolutely free. There's no catches or whatever. And I, the reason I'm plugging it is because of something Charles said. He hates screenwriting books that say every movie has to fall into this. I think in my opening couple paragraphs, I'm like, this isn't going to work for everybody, but this is yeah. what works for me. So check it out. And I think, uh, look, it's over 90 pages. There's, I think it's over 100 pages. There's you know pictures. There's little graphs we have in there. Um, it's been on the site for a couple of years. We wrote it for people during the pandemic. I think it's called How to Write a Screenplay During the Pandemic. In quarantine. Um, pandemic is, so you know, can, we blame, yes, exactly. can we blame you for the failure of Austin Film Festival? Did you inspire a lot of extra people to write screenplays so they had too many to read? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I honestly think you could blame me for the failure of lots of things. So if it's just, <laughs> if it's just AFF, I'm fine with that. <laughs> it's a great, it, it, is a, it is a great screenplay book. And you're right. I remember reading the introduction and being like, fuck yeah, Jason. Like you have not tried to make the answer to everything. You've tried to be like, this is a thing that will work in certain circumstances. The answer uh, to exactly. infection yeah. is here in the yeah. screenwriting book. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then there's articles yeah, on the website, nofilmschool.com about a bunch of the stuff we talked about today, but not the Robin, Ruben Ostlund thing. Although there's other articles about triangle of sadness up there. And I'm on the internet at Mastodon at Trollsane at barbecue.snoot. And I don't really do the rest of the internet, but Mastodon slaps and go to screenwriting Mastodon. There's great people there. And uh, yeah, I also do YouTube stuff. Check it out. 